Hello, I'm Kate Jabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace sets out the future for Britain's military in a major defence review. It marks a shift from mass mobilisation to information age speed, readiness and relevance for confronting the threats of the future. Under the plans, there's investment in new equipment and technologies, but the number of personnel in the regular army will fall. We hear from former Army Commander General Sir Richard Barons. I think that we should have delayed making big cuts until we were clear about the new capability we were going to introduce. And Labour's Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy says he fears the review is repeating mistakes of the past. The strength of our armed forces cut again. Crucial military capabilities cut again. Plans to complete a full overhaul of the army ten years' time again. We'll assess what the changes mean to the Army, Navy and Air Force. And for expert analysis, we'll be joined by Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the think tank RUSI, and by Larissa Brown, the defence editor of The Times. News, discussions and analysis. This is SITREP. It was last autumn when it was announced there was a new settlement of an additional £16.5 billion of defence funding over the next four years. Last week, we saw the shape of the government's broad thinking over defence and security. And this week, we got the details for the military. Our reporter, James Hurst, looks back on a few key days for defence. We'll call the Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace. Secretary of State. After a year in the making, this was the Defence Secretary's moment to reveal the new blueprint for the armed forces for decades ahead. It marks a shift from mass mobilisation to information age speed, readiness and relevance for confronting the threats of the future. There is a new higher technology future here, but there is also some pain. Much of it lands on the army. It loses a third of its tanks and all of its warrior armoured fighting vehicles, replaced by Ajax and non-fighting boxer armoured vehicles. And there is a cut in people, reducing the target size of the army by almost 10,000 within five years. The army's increased deployability and technological advantage will mean that greater effect can be delivered by fewer people. The RAF's fleet of planes shrinks to deliver new ones more than a decade from now. Hercules and Tranche 1 typhoons will be retired. The planned Wedgetail surveillance fleet reduced from five to three. If there's a winner in this, it's the Royal Navy. It is promised more sailors, though no figure on that. The fleet of frigates and destroyers will eventually rise slightly from its current number of 19, but before then, older ships may retire before new ones arrive. Increased funding offers defence an exciting opportunity to turn our current forces into credible ones, modernising for the threat to the 2020s and beyond. There are growth areas for defence in all this. Space, cyber, artificial intelligence, all of those welcomed by the Shadow Defence Secretary John Healy. But these new technologies may take years to come on stream. So this is a plan for cuts now with a promise of jam tomorrow. There was a similar review from the SNP's Jamie Stone. The Minister will have some convincing to do here in Parliament that he's going to be able to retire the old, bring in the new and not have such a big gap in the middle. It's not just about numbers of people, tanks and computers though. It is also about changes to thinking and working, particularly having more personnel working outside the UK with new hubs around the world. Lena Forces, says the command paper, are more nimble. 
A word which has frustrated former Chief of the Defence Staff General Lord Richards, who points to rapid operations that he led in East Timor and Sierra Leone. We were in the Far East within, I think it was six days of being told to go. In Sierra Leone it was 36 hours. So the British Army and the armed forces don't need lectures on being nimble. Uh, what we had then was the capacity to deploy us very quickly, which uh, I see jeopardised a little because the enablers and the logistics are, at least for a while, not going to be as they ought to be. Concerns shared by his successor, General Lord Horton, when they gave evidence to MPs a day after the review was released. We appear to be reducing down to a sort of a one-shot, quite long notice, not long sustainment um, set of armed forces. There has been a different political tone to this defence review. It's acknowledged the failure of past defence reviews to deliver what was promised. The Defence Secretary asks that this one is judged on what it actually achieves. If this defence command paper is anything, it is an honest assessment of what we can do and what we will do. We will ensure defence is threat-focused, modernised and financially sustainable, ready to confront future challenges, seize new opportunities for global Britain and lay the foundations of a more secure and prosperous United Kingdom. We will, for the first time in decades, match genuine money to credible ambitions. We will retire platforms to make way for new systems and approaches. And we will invest the most precious commodity of all, the people of our armed forces. Ben Wallace ending that report by James Hurst. So let's start with the impact on the army. General Sir Richard Barons was Commander Joint Forces Command, now Strategic Command, until his retirement in 2016. He saw service overseas, including time in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I think we need to start by accepting that we're in the early stages of of the most significant transformation of what an army looks like for about 150 years. And in that setting, it would make no sense to spend a lot of money updating 1990s equipment. It makes much more sense to start to buy things that we fit for this century. And the challenge is how you get from where we are now to where we know we need to be. But Lord Richards, former chief of the defence staff, told us last week uh, that the planned size of the army is just too small. He said it just isn't enough to achieve the goals set out in the integrated review. So I think there are two very important things in terms of the strategic context of the review. The first thing is the review makes very clear we're moving into a much more dangerous, uncertain and challenging world where nations will fight again in a way that we haven't had to think about, certainly since the, the Cold War. Uh, And the second thing is, these problems are going to be at scale. So having a very small army now, I absolutely concur, means that we're going to run a lot of risk until we have built the successor. But you seem to be saying that those risks are necessary in this transformation. So uh, I think that we should have delayed making big cuts until we were clear about the new capability we were going to introduce, which will be a mixture of this manned unmanned on autonomous capability which is barely even in in development uh, yet Uh, i i think right now we are at risk of saying the world is a very dangerous place and then we're making the army smaller while we work out for largely financial reasons how to buy the successor capability and i think that's quite dangerous The Defence Secretary Ben Wallace said increased deployability and technological advantage meant greater effect could be delivered by fewer people. Um, 
Do you agree with that? I, I, you know, I absolutely agree with the direction of travel. And I think there is quite a bold statement about how the armed forces need to change. So uh, we used to talking about the Internet of Things. Um, and now we're going to talk about the military Internet of Things. And for an army, uh, we're going to change the paradigm over time from a world where we've been, where we have quite a lot of people manning a relatively small amount of equipment to a world which is dominated by unmanned and increasingly autonomous capability where relatively fewer people will drive many, many more machines. So that's how we'll do maths in the future. We just don't, we don't have it now. And so making the army smaller until we've built mass through autonomy means we're going to run some risk. But the direction of travel is absolutely right. The current Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, said it's an army that I think is of a decent match and what our NATO partners expect of us. Do you think the Americans and our other NATO allies will be content? So I think our NATO allies will, will regret that we're making cuts of this size right now without being able to be clear about what is coming next. And there's going to be a gap while we um, fund and work out um, what this is. On the other hand, I think there's an opportunity for the army to set the pace within NATO for what a digital age army needs to, to, to look like in terms of manned on manned and autonomous capability, uh, much more heavily invested in air defence and long range precision fires and autonomous uh, systems. Uh, and, and we are, as an army, capable of, of being really good at that. We're just not there uh, yet. And other aspects like the creation of uh, rangers capability uh, is, in my view, long overdue and will mean that uh, the army is able to play a much better role in things like capability building overseas. That's really important. That was General Sir Richard Barons. Well, I'm joined now by our panel this week of Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the think tank RUSI, and by Larissa Brown, the defence editor of The Times. Let, let's start with the army. Michael, how historic is this review for the army? Oh, it's very big. Um, certainly the biggest uh, change for over a century, I would say, because, as Richard Barron said, I mean, the army is taking a bet, or the government's taking a bet with the army, on getting it right in terms of the new type of warfare that we're moving into. And it's doing it, um, that is, it's, it's, it's departing from the old model, and it's adopting the new model before it really knows what the new model will look like. So it talks in very generic terms about air defence. We must have more air defence for the army, but it doesn't say what it's going to be. It talks about the need for a, a medium-weight helicopter. It doesn't say what it's going to be. An awful lot of the, the so-called jam tomorrow, as, as the opposition party puts it, is a bit unspecified. And the structure of the army will change a lot. There's going to be a special operations brigade in which this ranger regiment will exist, a, a security force assistance brigade, a global response force. And although the army will still, you know, it will raise its war fighting forces through three division, and then one division will be the division it sends anywhere, and then six div, or the new six division, will be the, the electronic war fighting division, if you like. That will look the same, but everything else will look very, very different. So this is a new, I call it the new model army, and we'll see whether this new model army can be an example, uh, lead the pack among NATO armies uh, regarding the, the way in which future ground warfare is really going to evolve. Larissa Brown, you heard the general there warning of a risk in drawing down troop numbers before the technology brings in new capabilities, but he's in favour of the direction of travel. There have been mixed responses to the changes, haven't there? 
They have indeed, and, and Michael's just touched upon um, a point that's been my biggest frustration, is that there's no actual detail on, on what is coming. So, for example, we were told that there'd be a, a, a new experimentation battalion, which is going to be drawn from the Yorkshire Regiment. And the detail that we got was that, you know, it will trial cutting edge technology and drive innovation, but, but we don't know exactly what that's going to, going to look like. And so you can't escape that headline figure of losing 10,000 personnel and then not being able to actually have a clear plan in place for how that's going to be, how, how you're going to ensure that you've still got a credible army. Mm. Uh, Michael Clark, uh, the NATO Secretary General, Jens Stoltenberg, was making positive noises about the defence review yesterday. Is it going down well in NATO? Well, he has to say good things about it uh, because that's partly his job. Um, but I think, I mean, all of the NATO allies, as Richard Barron said, they're all watching intently because we're the first ones to try this experiment in a way. And so everybody wants to see how it will work. But undoubtedly, there is some scepticism out there that, that we are, we're going to a very small force. And it's really not quite clear whether we'll, we'll be able to make a strategic difference when the army, as with Britain's other forces, actually goes abroad and does something. Mm. Larissa, what are the areas that will be invested in in the army? Well, we're getting the new boxer vehicles and uh, and again the review says that they'll replace these 767 warrior fighting vehicles that are going to be withdrawn. And that's interesting in itself because, of course, these these boxer armoured personnel vehicles aren't aren't a light for light replacement to the to the warrior vehicles. You know, they don't have a have a, have a heavy gun, and uh, and we've not got those details yet on whether boxer is going to be adapted to have to have a turret in this thirty millimetre meter gun. And again, you know, Michael was saying about these air defences, tactical surveillance drones, new electronic warfare and, and cyberspace capabilities. That, that's the detail that we've got. We're not, we've not really got any more uh, flesh on the bones as, as such. Stay with us both. Let's move on to the Navy now. Well, earlier I spoke to Professor Eric Grove, a naval historian and defence analyst, who gave me his assessment of the review. On the whole, the Navy has done quite well out of this. I mean, although to some extent it's jammed tomorrow. I mean, two frigates out of service early, which will bring things down from 19 to 17. And then we're, uh, we're told that the numbers by the early 2030s, about a decade or so's time, will rise to 24 with the new types 26, 31 and 32. But of course, we've had uh, programs cut in the past, like, for example, the Type 45 destroyers. So there's always a danger that promises can be made, but will they be kept? The First Sea Lord has said uh, this review is about global Britain. And my job as head of the Navy is to provide the Prime Minister with a global Navy. Can he do that? He can do up to a point. I mean, the plan seems to be to put these likely armed offshore patrol vessels in distant areas, uh, one in the Caribbean, one in the Falklands, uh, one in, in, in Gibraltar, also operating off Africa, and one in the Far East, based at Singapore, I, I expect. So, so that is a level of presence. How far it's a level of military capability is another matter. Uh, these patrol vessels were actually kept deliberately lightly armed. So I think if it had been known then that they would be part of a global presence, they might have been more, more heavily armed. And various options have been suggested for actually improving their level of capability. But they can be backed up. I mean, we, we're sending a carrier group to the Far East. Uh, uh, there will be, and albeit reduced in the, in the medium term, force of frigates and destroyers. So they can be backed up and there will be a global presence but in a sense it's a global presence which is has its weaknesses. What does a future commando force mean for the Royal Marines and carrier strike group? It seems to have been reshaped in a more responsive kind of way. Um, there are going to be these two littoral groups, one apparently based around you know, what 
uh, one of the LPDs, Albion, and the other, you know, based around the new converted electoral strike ship. And this will, in fact, increase the responsiveness of the Royal Marines. Now, numbers will come down, but perhaps, as it said, you know, the actual responsiveness will increase. And, and I think it's quite a positive trend in many ways. It brings the Royal Marines back to their commando role rather than being just an extra infantry unit. That was Professor Eric Grove. Well, still with us is Professor Michael Clark, the former director of the think tank Rusi, and Larissa Brown, the defence editor of The Times. Larissa, many commentators have said the Navy has done well out of this review. Do you agree? Yeah, and actually we went to, um, uh, we went on an away day to Bovington and um, uh, last last Friday and we saw the Royal Marine commandos in action. It was sort of designed to show us what the commando force would look like and how they might work with these ranger forces and I think that you know they were, they were, everyone was feeling very very positive about it because it gave them sort of a, a you know a new a new task and a new role and they they all seemed quite excited so I think they have done quite well out of it in in that way and of course there's been a lot of focus on the aircraft carrier in the command paper and that's obviously you know it's exciting for for Britain and Obviously, we don't know yet whether this is going to whether the aircraft carrier is going to go to the South China Sea, which will make things very interesting in terms of the context with China. But yes, I think the I think the Navy have done have done pretty well out of this. Um, but I would just say that, of course, we are going to have the two of the Type Twenty Three frigates going, and that means that we will be down to just seventeen frigates and destroyers for several years. I'm told, which mm. which is going to be significant and. As Michael said, it is going to be um, something where we're waiting for those, those that force element to increase over the next few years. But in that meantime, we're going to have a, a capability gap. Mm. And Larissa, um, the Prime Minister did say that there would be no redundancies, but you're getting some news or hearing some murmurings about the Royal Marines. Yes, very interesting. This obviously wasn't included in the Defence Command paper or in Ben Wallace's statement to Parliament on Monday. But I'm told that on his desk is a proposal by the the Navy to cut the Royal Marines by 400 personnel. Um, And so that would take the force from 6,500 to 6,100. And so, you know, we will have to wait and see. He's not yet signed off on it, but that could be quite a dramatic decrease for the Marines. Uh, Michael Clark, there's investment going into drones and robots. How will the Navy use them? Uh, well, the Type 32, the new design, will be a, a bit like the uh, the Tempest project for the Air Force. So the idea would, it would be one um, very well-run frigate, very well-armed frigate, with some drone uh, craft that it can control. So one is drones at sea, smaller ships that can, can work with a frigate. Another is undersea drones, because one of the things the Navy does worry about is the degree to which the oceans may be becoming more transparent. At the moment, they're not. They're the one area of warfare that that is not very transparent um, but they worry that in the next 30 40 years that may change and so they want to stay in ahead in that and then of course they want all of their ships to be able to uh, interact with all of the other domains space and cyber ground and air as well as the sea and the undersea domain Mm. And there has, Michael, been criticism this week from the former CDS, Lord Horton, who said to MPs, I absolutely agree that sending a carrier group is not necessarily the best way of seeking accommodation, talking about China. What is the purpose behind sending that carrier group to the Indo-Pacific? Well, I mean, it'll be a floating trade fair, that's for sure. I mean, it's going to uh, 40 different countries. It's due to make at least 70, I think, port visits. I mean, John Healy, the, the Labour spokesman, he's got a good phrase. He said it's, it's going on a gap year before it gets down to some real work. It's like a gap year trip. Um, and in a way, it, it is. Um, 
there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, they can do a lot of good in terms of diplomacy and showing the flag uh, around the world. And I'm sure, um, as Larissa implies, I'm sure it'll go into the South China Sea in order to make the point that it can. It's, it's a FONOPS. It's a freedom of navigation operation. And if you got the carrier in East Asia and it didn't go into the South China Sea, it would look as if you were scared. And so it, I'm sure it will, although no decision has been announced on that yet. Um, but what will happen? The, the issue is what happens after it's done this gap year, this world tour. And the idea then, as Eric Grove was saying, is that we, we'd have a presence in the a permanent presence there with, first of all, offshore patrol vessels, these very light vessels, and then eventually with a frigate permanently stationed probably in Singapore. Um, so, yeah, presence in the Indo-Pacific. Um, what that will mean, we don't know. And of course, the danger is it could get us pulled into situations that we then can't really control. That's always the issue. And finally, the RAF. I spoke to Justin Bronk, the research fellow for air power and technology at RUSI, and we started with the development of Tempest, the next generation of combat aircraft. Definitely, there's a lot of ambition that's been been set down on Tempest uh, in this review, but it remains to be seen whether that can be developed at the scale and in the scope that is being discussed by 2035, or whether in the end it gets pared down to, to a rather more modest programme. And the review confirmed the number of F-35 jets flying off carriers will be increased beyond the 48 ordered, but there was no commitment to the 138 outlined in the 2015 review. What's going on, do you think? Uh, I think what's going on is that the argument around how they're going to fund additional tranches and when they're going to try and fund additional tranches of orders beyond 2025 for F-35 is, is very much still ongoing. I think an eventual order of only 48 is probably politically not viable with the Americans, particularly with the US Marine Corps, who would be apoplectic about the current announcement, let alone if whatever assurances they've been given uh, sort of behind the scenes turn out to not be, uh, <laughs> not be genuine. It, this matters doubly. It's not just annoying our, our closest ally, but it's also deeply, deeply upsetting for the US Marine Corps, who are kind of stepping in, have bent their marine expeditionary unit concept out of shape to supplement the number of F-35Bs on the Queen Elizabeth carriers for the first several years, at least. The problem is F-35 remains an expensive aircraft, even though the acquisition cost has come down significantly, it's still expensive to run. So, you know, as I understand it, the arguments are around, you know, a number between kind of 60 and 72 as an eventual purchase. Part of that might be funded by the money kind of saved from retiring the tranche, remaining tranche one typhoons early, 2025 instead of 2035. And there will be some sentiment at the retirement of the Hercules fleet, but will the C-17 and the A-400M aircraft really provide more flexibility as promised? I think the, the A400M uh, can cover most of the duties that C-130 has become so iconic performing. Of course, it's, it's, a, you know, it's given sterling service. It's, it's an object of a great deal of affection for a lot of people. If the acquisition plan goes ahead for Golf model uh, long-range Chinooks as well uh, to replace uh, the older nine Chinook Mark 6As that are going out of service, then that will also you know, bring in a capability that can do some of the C-130 job at the lower end, at the shorter ranged end, where you're looking for smaller uh, assets. So between Long Range Chinook and A400M expanding the role, the, you know, the cleared role set, I think most of the individual mission sets that C-130 currently does can be covered mm. off, but it's an unavoidable loss of capacity. But do you think that the retirement of the Hercules fleet was actually quite, on balance, a sensible decision? I think on balance, yeah, the, the, the retirement of the C-130 and indeed the Puma fleets is not necessarily surprising. I think it's quite logical because 
If you look at the RAF's mobility fleet and its mobility capacity compared to any other comparably sized air force or any other European ally, it's completely outsized. That was Justin Bronk. Well, Larissa Brown, the defence editor of The Times, and Professor Michael Clark are still with me. Uh, Larissa, what do you think the strategy is regarding the numbers of F-35s? Well, I think the 138 figure is, is, is obviously a pipe dream at this moment. And from what I've heard from people in the department, it doesn't seem like they're going to get anywhere close to that number. And of course, we've already got the 48 ordered. And I think we're going to be relying much more on the um, American aircraft, especially when we're using the aircraft carrier, um, taking it to the Indo-Pacific. We already know that we're going to be having about half of US jets on the aircraft carrier alongside our UK ones. Mm. Michael, where does the review leave the RAF as a whole, do you think? Uh, it leaves it uh, with a, quite an important role because it's going to run Space Command. Um, it, undoubtedly, for the future, it will be the, the force which is using most uh, robotics, the drones of various sorts and surveillance craft. And the chief of the air staff has said that, well, by 2040, he would expect it to be a sort of an 80-20 split. So that, you know, 20% of its airframes would be manned or crewed and 80% of them would be uncrewed would be some sort of drone and that's a that's a big change so the air force is moving in a very technological direction so we'll see fewer aircraft that we recognize and rather more aircraft that we don't recognize yes and larissa how do you think the creation of a new space command will shape the uk's defenses well, it's a, it's a very good question because, I mean, I find, find the whole idea of space absolutely fascinating. And we've spoken to quite a few senior military chiefs recently who have been telling us that they're going to, you know, they're investing billions more pounds in space. And we've been warned about what our adversaries are doing. So Russia and China developing anti-satellite weapons. But what we've not got the details on is what exactly the UK is going to spend that money on. We've just been told that they want to research what our adversaries are doing um, and find out more about their actions in space but they're sort of being a bit nervous about the, the idea that they could develop any any defense mechanisms that they could use in space so so actually this is something that we're going to hopefully be getting more details on in the coming coming few months mm, and michael any more details on the national cyber force to be created no not really we don't know any more than we already did which is that it's going to be a, a, a an organization that's uh, caught or stuck in between the Ministry of Defence and GCHQ, so it'll be staffed from both sides. Um, it will do what we set out, it should do uh, really a couple of years ago. It needs to actually pull together Britain's cyber defences, but also its ability in offensive cyber. And interestingly, Kieran Martin, who used to be the director of the National Cyber Security Centre, wrote an article only last week saying, we have to be a bit careful about this offensive cyber because the review claims that we will be a responsible cyber power and he said what does that mean a responsible cyber power and if we're known for being offensive if we're known for hacking into other systems does that make us responsible and he was saying that, that we've got to be really careful about this it's very easy to bring everything together and say how powerful we're going to be in cyberspace but he said we've got to be we've got to be aware of the type of cyber power we really are going to be in practice and I think that's yes. a good warning I think we're going to be talking a lot more about this so-called grey zone, aren't we? Um, Larissa, uh, on the subject of personnel and jobs, you, you have also learnt something about the RAF regiment that wasn't announced. 
Yes, uh, in the same way as the Royal Marines, we were told that the RAF regiment is going to be cut by 300 personnel by 2025. So, of course, there'd be no, you know, nobody actually lose their jobs. This would be a natural reduction in the in the force. It currently has around 1,850 full-time personnel. And again, it's not signed off, is it? It's not signed off yet. It's not signed off, but it's on Wallace's desk, and that's what the RAF have suggested. And somebody did make, make the point to me that, if you've got um, less less um, less aircraft, as the uh, Defence Command papers set out, I mean, the details that I was looking at, it's, it's over 100 aircraft um, that are actually going to be cut over the next few years. And of course, they'll be replaced, but we've not got the numbers on, on in terms of how many they'll be replaced by. But the general feeling is that the number of aircraft will reduce. And so if that, the number of aircraft is reduced, then do you really need all these, um, all, the, all the personnel in the RAF regiment defending airfields? Because you're going to have less of them, basically. It's been really quite a couple of weeks uh, for defence. I'm just wondering if you could sum up, uh, Larissa, in 30 seconds, what this review means for UK defence. Well, I think I'd like to see more about what's happening in the in the grey zone. Ben Wallace has set out that he wants the UK to operate more in this sort of sub-threshold domain. But what does that mean exactly? You know, Russia does this by funding troll farms that spread disinformation and backing mercenaries and carrying out cyber attacks. But what is the UK going to do exactly if it's not willing to get its hands dirty in the same way? And Michael Clark, what about you? Yeah, two big documents, two quite long documents. They've been 18 months in the works, and yet what's come out looks as as if it's been put together in a very rushed way. And the phrase at pace comes out in the documents. Everything's going to be done at pace. So it's as if the whole of the defence establishment is breathless with all of this. Um, It'll take some time for us to think through what is really going to come out of this review, I suspect. Professor Michael Clark, Larissa Brown, thank you very much. That's it from me, Kate Chabot, and all of my guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. (laughs) 